us right in the middle. I believe it's page 448 in your pew Bible. Otherwise, just open your Bible to the middle and you'll hit it and then go to the beginning. We are in Psalms 1 and 2 together this morning. We've ended our sermon series in 1 Thessalonians. We had an excellent beginning in the book of Psalms last week in Psalms 125. Now we're going to spend the rest of the summer in this lovely book of poetry. Ready? Let's read it together first. This is the word of God, Psalms 1 and Psalms 2. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of mockers. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Psalms 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand, and rulers gather together against the Lord and against his Mashiach, his anointed one, his Messiah. Let us break their chains, they say. Let us throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them, and he says, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will declare the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, and the ends of the earth your possession. And you will rule them with an iron scepter, and you will smash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, be wise, O kings. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son lest he become angry and you perish in your way, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we come to you now. We want to hear your word and love it. And we want to know your son and love him. Use this word to point us to your Son, that we might have life in him and live for him now and forever. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. You know, I like to think of myself as a connoisseur of the finer things in life, right? I'm a connoisseur of good food, especially when it's in a steaming mug with a lot of black liquid in there that I've roasted and I've brewed myself so it's done correctly in a cup of coffee, right? A connoisseur. I also like to think I'm a connoisseur of really good stories, really good narratives like Star Wars. I mean, what's more compelling story is that? Or The Lord of the Rings. I also like to think I'm a connoisseur of really good poetry. So I thought I'd share with you a really good poem. There once was a small boy of Quebec who was buried in snow to his neck. I thought this worked well for Minnesota. 
When they said, are you frizz? He said, yes, I is. But they don't call this cold in Quebec. Well, there's nothing like a good poem, right? And that was nothing like a good poem. So to be honest, while I really do like coffee and Star Wars and Lord of the Rings, I, and I really like a good story, I have not done a good job at learning to appreciate good poetry. That I'm not so good at. Right? Poetry's always kind of been something that I thought was nicely held over here. Because it was, it was a little too hard. And it was a little too foofy. You know what I mean? Like the foofy really put me off. And in general, I think poetry is just hard to understand, right? Unless it's about a small boy of Quebec buried in snow to his neck, because that I can get. But generally, I think poetry is hard to get, and it requires a lot of work. And I've just kind of held it off over here. And that, what that means is, for most of the time I've been a Christian, which is almost 40 years now, following Jesus, I have not spent much time with the book of Psalms. Because it's poetry, and it's over here. Right? Other than a passing acquaintance, like, hey, good, good to see you today, as I'm flipping through it to some other book, right? or maybe looking up some verses out of, to rip them out of context and use them in a way they weren't intended. I did that well. Or maybe just study one passage, like Psalms 23. Right? I can get that. Let's just, let's just look at that and not the rest of it. Other than those kinds of things, I did not get to know the book of Psalms very well for most of my life because it requires a slower pace. It requires a quieter heart. It requires a disposition that's willing to just sit and listen and soak. And frankly, I found the book quite intimidating. So my solution was to leave it alone. Until about 2015 or so. And I decided I could not continue to neglect this fairly large chunk of Scripture if I really believed all Scripture is inspired and God breathed and all Scripture is useful for teaching and correcting and training people so that they're ready to live a righteous life in Christ. Well, I mean, Psalms 119 by itself is longer than almost 30 other books of the Bible. So I'm kind of leaving out a huge chunk of the Bible that I say is necessary for my life if I ignore this book. So I'm like, well, I have to do something about this. So I decided to teach a class on it, right? Whenever you're in doubt about something, just write a book or teach a class. That's the way this usually works, right? And that solves everything. So I decided to teach a six-week class, sort of a get-to-know-you class on the Psalms for the church I was in then. And as I did my research and my study with that, I began to form a long-term relationship with the book of Psalms because I think that's what it takes. It's not, one, it's not fast food, Right? It's not just this quick, it's not a blog entry or a tweet or a quick post or 140 characters that you can just zoom through or a little Snapchat thing and you just move on. Psalms doesn't work that way. It's not fast food. It's fine dining. And it requires slow, quiet, listening, soaking. So I began in 2015 to form a long-term relationship with this book, despite that it's poetry. And discovered it's much better poetry than the small boy in Quebec buried in his snow too. buried in snow to his neck. And I have to tell you that there's no way I can go back, right? Life is only lived forward, never backwards. We're not Benjamin Button. We can't go backwards. So I can't go back and remedy all the neglect from from ignoring this book, right? And and I can't make up for the, the lack of the depth of Christian character that I would have if I'd started in this book when I was younger, the vibrant prayer life that would be more mine if I had started in this book younger, right? The forming that would make me more like Jesus if I just soaked in these. So I can't go back and do anything about that, but I can, going forward, stop ignoring the book 
and start soaking. That's what I've been doing for the last seven years. This is an amazingly good text. I love this book, and I love soaking in it, and I love listening to it, and I hope you do too. I have become so convinced that this book is utterly necessary. If you're going to follow Jesus, you have to have Psalms. You can't follow him without it. Right? That's why we're spending every summer in this book. It's so important. It's the only text in Scripture we're going to come back to every single year because it's that important. We preach through other texts and other parts of the Bible the rest of the year, but every summer we come back to Psalms. Not because it's everybody's going to go to their cabin and be gone for a while, so we'll just do a book that doesn't matter. No, it's because it's one of the most important books for a vibrant Christian life and the formation of good Christian character that looks more like Jesus taking steps to the right all the time. So many of us weren't here when we started Summer in the Psalms, and I'm betting the rest of us don't remember when we started Summer in the Psalms, right? And that's okay, but that means that we may have forgotten a little bit about the setup, right? We did a setup for the book, like, was this four years ago, something like that? I don't remember. Four or five years ago, I think we started in Psalms. So what's its themes? What are its theology? What's its structure? What's its story? So I thought, well, why not, instead of jumping into Psalms 27, which is where we're at and ready to go from last, last year we ended at 26, let's just go back through the book again. So here, this is not a normal sermon. Usually I work my way through texts beginning to end. This is an introduction to the book again. So here's the point of the sermon, right? It's going to be Grace Covenant, Psalms. Psalms, Grace Covenant. Nice to meet you. Right? That's what we're doing this morning. We're going to do that, it seems to me, the best way to do that is to just let Psalms introduce itself. And it has two chapters that are the introduction to the book that will set up for us its themes, theology, and structure, and story. And that's Psalms 1 and 2. We're not going to go line by line through these Psalms. There's way too much going on in them. We'll never make it through today. So we're just going to hit some main themes and some main ideas in each of the two Psalms and see how those introduce for us the book. Right? So let's look at Psalms 1 first. Psalms 1 has a main image to it, the main driving theme of Psalms 1. There are two different ways. There are two different paths for life and only two that lead to two different ends and two different eternities. So I've titled Psalms 1, The Two Ways, because I think that's what it's about. There are only two ways, only two paths, and only two ends for every person. And I think the big question that Psalms 1 is asking is, so how do I end up blessed, right? Because that's how it starts. It's the first word. Blessed is the man. Well, that's what I want. I want a life that matters and lasts. And how do I get it? And that's the question that's wanting us to ask. Everybody asks this. Ecclesiastes was a whole book that asked this question all the way from beginning to end of how do I find a life that's meaningful and lasting? Right? Even, even tourist departments in states want you to be asking this question. I, I, I like to kind of tweak Nebraska's state tourism mottos. Right? The last two they've had, I like, I like both of them. Two mottos ago, Nebraska was the good life. Right? Of course. If you want to have a life that matters and lasts, right? If you want a blessing, well, move to Nebraska because that's where it's found, right? Nebraska, the good life. And I like their current motto a little bit better because it aligns with my sarcastic sense of humor more. And some of you have heard me say this. Nebraska's current motto is, honestly, it's not for everyone. Yeah, right? You like that? I think that's clever. So Nebraska's the good life, but honestly... It's not for everyone. So maybe you shouldn't come here. Because we already, you know, that's sort of, the, I like that. That's what we want. <clears throat> that's what we're longing for. 
<clears throat> excuse me, that's what Psalms 1 is wanting us to ask about. There are only two ways, two paths, and two destinies. How do I get the one that's blessed and not the one that's not? Well, there are two ways. So look at the imagery that's going on. Way number one is this downward spiral. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the way of sinners, and sit in the seat of mockers. Those three verbs are a downward spiral, each one more intense than the last one. That's the way Hebrew poetry usually works. It intensifies line to line to line. And so blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. That's I'm having my worldview, my understanding, my life informed by the world around me. By the, by the people who are standing opposed to God and are not following him. And they're the ones that I draw upon. They're the ones whose counsel I seek. They're the ones whose advice I draw upon. That's walking. And then it's a little worse. You start standing. And that's the idea of standing up for. Right? I may not be quite joining in with people opposed to God yet, but I'm going to stand up for them. They should be able to live however they want to. That's their truth. They get to define their own lives. They get to decide for themselves. We shouldn't tell them. We shouldn't speak truth. In fact, maybe there isn't any. Let's stand with the way of sinners. Right? We're going to stand together with them and stand up for them and stand against God. And then it's sit in the seat of mockers. And that's a pull up the chair at the kitchen table and make your home kind of word. That's a dwelling. It's used for dwelling in other places in scripture. It's a, this is my home. These are my people. This is what I want to do. I'm going to stand with those. I'm going to sit with those who mock God. This is now my home. It's a downward spiral. It's the downward spiral of rebellion that you might find in Benedict Arnold, right? Slowly unwinding himself. If you like American history. Or if you like Lord of the Rings, this might be Saruman, the white wizard, right, who ends up aligned with the dark lord Sauron. Or this might be Anakin Skywalker, who starts off as a Jedi and ends up as the world's most recognized supervillain, Darth Vader. Or it might be Judas, who's one of the disciples who betrays his lord to death. Or it's just you, born dead in transgressions and sins, opposed to God, and an object of wrath. That's where everyone starts life, right here. That's one way. The other way is very different. Blessed is the man who does not, but he delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on it day and night. There's this delightful occupation that characterizes the other way. And it's the man who delights or loves Torah, is the Hebrew word. Torah is a word that can mean the first five books of the Bible. We call it the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that. It's also a word, and will be used later in Psalms, to mean all of Scripture, all of the Word of God. I think that's how it's being used here. So it includes this book, but it also includes all of the others. Blessed is the man who loves the Word of God. That gets you on the path of blessing. You're not listening to the counsel of the wicked. You're not standing up for sinners. You're not making your home with the mockers. You're loving the word of God to do what it says. Those are the two main ways, and those are the only two. And those lead to two different destinies in Psalms 1, right? Blessed is the man who loves and delights in the law because he becomes a tree. He's an oak. I always think of the movie Tombstone. Have you seen that movie? There's a line in there. Val Kilmer has all the good lines in that movie. And one of them is, what? You are an oak, right? You're the oak. You're the tree. You're planted by the stream. You're immovable. Nobody can, nobody can push you off that spot because you're loving the word of God to do what it says. That's one image. And then the other one is the wicked. Last time I preached this, I brought coffee chaff because I just roasted coffee, and I thought it would be fun to have a pile of it in my hand. 
right? And coffee chaff just makes a huge mess in the kitchen when you roast. Coffee chaff just goes everywhere. There's nothing to it. It can't grow anything. You can't eat it. There's no nutritional value. It's useless. And the wicked, those who stand against God, are like chaff, which is the complete opposite of a fruitful, well-planted standing oak tree. Those are the two images that lead to the two destinies of Psalms 1. The Lord watches over the ways of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Those are the only two options. Life, right relationship with God that somehow comes through delighting in his word, and death becoming like chaff and perishing in judgment. Which leaves us with a question, I think, Why is it the word of God that makes that difference? What is it about loving the law, loving Torah, loving scripture, that makes the difference between these two ways? That becomes, I think, a key way to discern a little bit about how our loves are distorted and twisted. Like, what is my relationship with the Bible right now? Am I loving it and delighting it? Or am I kind of holding it off at arm's length like I used to do to Psalms? Saying, no, not right now. If, you're, if you find yourself in that state of, no, not right now, there's probably mainly one or two explanations for that. And one of them is that a time of confession is in order. And sin has calloused your heart. And you're loving yourself instead of the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul and everything. And it's time to have a time of repentance and a come to Jesus meeting where you turn back to Christ and you set aside the sin that you're wrestling with and can't get, can't get past and then come back to the Bible and begin to love it again. So it's possible you're a Christian and you just have a hard, calloused heart and you need to come back and repent to, the, to loving and delighting in the Bible. The other option that's also fairly likely is that you're just not a Christian. You might think you are. But if you lack a driving love for the Word of God, it is appropriate that you should ask yourself, do I actually know the God of Scripture? Have I really come to the Son? Have I bowed my knee and do I have forgiveness and reconciliation with him? Because a love, a delight in the law of the Lord, Scripture, characterizes someone who is on that path of life. And if that's not you, then you're likely not on that path. So that's some of the theology Those are some of the themes that the book of Psalms is going to deal with it, primarily orbiting around the word of God. It's a little bit of structure and story, though you can't get much structure and story from the first chapter. So let's look at the second one, right? Because the Psalms 1 by itself doesn't really even answer the question, what is it about the Bible that makes the difference between these two ways? Psalms 1 doesn't actually answer that question. It just wants you to ask it. So now look at Psalms 2 in your text. The main image here, it takes what's going on on an individual level in Psalms 1 and turns it into a global level in Psalms 2. Now we're talking about everybody, right? Why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples plot and the kings of the earth and the rulers? And they're all taking their stand together. So while Psalms 1 is two different ways, Psalms 2 is two different kingdoms. And again, there are only two. There's no third choice. You're a part of one or the other of the two kingdoms of Psalms 2. The two kingdoms are seen in the first half of the psalm. 
So the first one is the nations who were raging. I always, I always think of the United Nations for some reason. When I hear it's like papers flying and people yelling and people throwing each other. Because even the words that are going on and this is they're raging, they're not even getting along with each other. Right? The only thing they actually have in common is they all hate God. And they want to throw, it's like, I'm not going to live in your world on your terms. I don't care what you say I need to do. I'm going to do what I want and I'm going to be God and I'm going to be in charge and I'm going to use garden language. I'm going to decide what is good. They have that in common, but other than that, they don't get along well with each other, and it's just this fracas of people yelling. Let us break their chains and throw off their fetters. Finally becomes the unifying chant of this kingdom of darkness. And then there's this other kingdom, the kingdom of light, under God's Son, where God says, no, my rule, my reign, and my word, they're not constraints. They're not hindering your freedom. What's hindering your freedom is your rebellion and your own sin. That's what's enslaved you. I'm going to come and set you free. So you're free to love my word and do what it says. That's freedom. And the way I'm going to do that is I've put my king on my hill on Zion. And there's nothing you can do about it. And I'm bringing my son, not to enslave you, but to set you free from sin and death to blessing and life. Those are the two kingdoms. And then we have two images in the psalm that go with them again. Right? The coming of the Son. Ask of me, I will make the nations your inheritance. I'm in verse 8. And the ends of the earth your possession. There's this, there's this renewed creation going on. There's this, now all of the world has come under the rule and reign of the coming Son and it's working the way it's supposed to. Finally. Wouldn't it be nice to have a week where everything went well? Right? I'd even take a day. Well, this is an eternity. The sun is now or- ruling over the new heavens and the new earth, and everything's going right. The alternative is, or you will also smash them to pieces like pottery. So those are the two images that go with the two kingdoms. Either enjoying the rule and the reign and the blessing of the sun, or being destroyed in his wrath like shattered pottery. And there are two destinies, right? Verses 10 through 12. Therefore hear, O kings, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Kiss the sun. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling and kiss the sun because his wrath can come at any time. And blessed are all who take refuge in him. So while there's still time, before the sun has come and finished his ruling work, finished his judging work, and set up his eternal kingdom, before that happens, now's the time to come to the sun in faith and take refuge in him. Love for the word. Love for the sun. Isn't it interesting that Psalms 1 and 2 bracket that way. It's called an inclusio if you're doing if you like literary terms. We begin with blessed is the man who loves the word. We end with blessed is the man or the, anyone who takes refuge in the sun. Those two things are meant to hang together to tell you the key that answers the question of life and the theology of the book of Psalms and it is this. The word of God lets you be on the path of blessing because the word of God is going to point you to the son of God to come to him in faith and take refuge in him for forgiveness and reconciliation. Psalms 32 happens when you do Psalms 1 and 2 rightly and hear the call of the word to come in faith to the Son. Does that make sense? And that's the message of the book. That's Psalms 2 in a nutshell. 
That's its themes in theology. The Word of God points you to the Son of God through whom there is life and blessing. That's how you become the blessed man. And there is no third option. One of two ways. One of two kingdoms. One always leads to death. One inevitably, because of the work of the Son, leads to life and blessing. So how do you get the good life? Because honestly, it's not for everyone. And it, it doesn't involve moving to Nebraska. Blessed is the man who loves the word. Blessed is the man who bows to the Son. That's how you get the good life. And it is only for those who will come in faith to be saved by grace from their sins. That's the story of Psalms in a nutshell. It happens to also be the story of the book. This is a book whose main storyline is the story of Jesus Christ from in the beginning to come Lord Jesus. It's about him, and it's the story of him coming for his people. The story that starts in Genesis. Every book and every chapter in this Bible are wanting the reader to have faith in the one who's coming, the one who is the serpent-crushing, curse-reversing, garden-restoring, death-undoing, people-regathering, new creation-making, seed of Eve, son of Abraham, king from the tribe of Judah, prophet who is like Moses, conqueror who's like Joshua, the king who never sins and never dies and we want to see in the book of Judges. He's the son of David from Samuel. He's the suffering servant of Isaiah. He's the good shepherd who's in Ezekiel. He's the son of God in Psalms. He's the one who redeems Ruth. He's the king who comes for his bride in the Song of Songs. He's the ruling son of man and the king in Daniel. And he's the one who's coming to rebuild God's temple in the book of Chronicles from beginning to end. And his name we meet at the beginning of Matthew. This is the book of the generations of Jesus Christ, who is that son of God, son of David, you've been waiting for. This is his book. And Psalms is as much his book as every other book of Scripture. It's the story of the son, the song of the coming king. That's the theme. That's the theology of Psalms. Now let's look a little bit more. And I'm moving quickly because we have more to cover. I'm not actually done. Let's look a little bit at the structure and the story as this moves from the introduction into the rest of the book to make sure that we got it right. And Psalms isn't actually about something else. So let's take a few structural looks. Look at the way some of the, because books and structure, right? The structure of a book's going to set you up to understand what it's about, if the author has any competence at all. So look at Psalms 1. What's it about? It's a book about the law, loving the word of God. What's Psalms 2 about? It's about the sun. It's a messianic psalm. Now let's look for other law psalms. There are a couple more. That, psalms that love the word of God, right? Psalms 19, we love the word of God. Psalms 119, the longest in the book. Love for the Word of God. What comes right after both of those psalms? Psalms of the Son. Messianic psalms follow 19. We studied them last year, right? Crucifixion, resurrection, ascension. Messianic psalms right after. It's Psalms 19. Love the Word, love the Son. Now look at Psalms 119. What follows it? 
It's the Psalms of Ascents, where the Son has come and is bringing his people back home to be with the Father with him as they're going back up, right, to be where God is at Jerusalem. And so in the Psalms of Ascents, so Messianic Psalms in the structure of the book always follow word psalms, reinforcing the idea that the point of this book is the Word of God will point you to the coming Son of God in whose name you will find life if you come by faith. It's embedded in the structure. Now, I think it's also interesting to observe that Psalms comes in five books. You may already know that. It's divided into five chunks, five sections, five books. It's marked off in your English Bible, I'm pretty sure. That's probably mirroring the beginning of the Bible. Five books start the Pentateuch. Five books begin or comprise the Psalms, as though the Psalms are saying, we're picking that story up. Remember that story about how God made the world perfect and very good? And Adam and Eve stole all his verbs and said, no, we're going to decide what's good. We're going to live in this world in our terms. We're in charge here. And the only thing that accomplished was not we're in charge here, but now we're dead and separated from God by sin. And now God has promised, I'm sending a serpent-crushing, curse-reversing, garden-restoring, people-regathering, new creation-making seed of Eve to come and heal you and redeem you and save you and fix this mess. Psalms is saying, I'm picking up that story, and we're going to advance that. Five books. What's interesting sometimes when you're doing Bible study, if you look at the scenes between things, whether it's between chapters or books of the Bible or books of Psalms. So let's look at the scenes of the book of Psalms. Let's see what we find there. Look at the end of book one. That's in Psalms 41. Go ahead and flip there if you want. And look at the last verse. It's verse 13. And it says this, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. So the book starts with, You want to be the blessed man. But here at the end of book one, who is the story actually about? Whose worship is it for? Who is the blessed one at the end of Psalms 41? Blessed be the... We'll try that again. Blessed be the Lord. This is actually his story. It's his book. And the blessing that he's bringing by faith in the Son is actually about him. So that he is worshipped and he is praised. This isn't about us at all, we're finding out at the end of book one. This is actually so he gets the worship he deserves. Now let's look at the end of book two. That's Psalm 72. Let's see what we find at the end of book two in Psalm 72. This would be starting in verses 18 and going to verse 20. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel. That sounds really familiar. Who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole world be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. And the prayers of David, son of Jesse, are here ended. Same theme, isn't it? Same refrain, except now it's extended to then. The point here is the redemption of the entirety of the world, people and physical, to our new creation and people. Okay, so let's keep going. That's just book two. Book three ends in Psalms 89. Let's go look at that. See what we find there. Psalms 89. Verse 52. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. Now that one's significantly shorter, isn't it? Same refrain. This is about God, not about us, and for his glory and not ours. But it's really short. So think about what Psalms book 3 is singing and how it ends. Psalms 88. 
in the psalm of darkness. It's the only psalm that ends that way. Darkness, I've lost all my friends and all my companions, and darkness is my closest friend. It ends in exile, in separation, and in death. No other psalm ends that way. And then Psalms 89 picks it up and says, yeah, but your covenant to David, you promised him a son forever. And then you're building, it's like, okay, okay, we still have David and that's possible. And then Psalms 89 says, and that didn't work. The Davidic covenant has failed. You haven't kept your promise. We're out of the land. The line of kings is broken and we're in exile. And that's it. Right? You said you wouldn't lie to David. But I'm saying, where is your steadfast love of old? Where have you gone? You've made his splendor cease. You've cast his crown to the ground. This looks like this didn't work after all. There is no salvation coming. The king's dead. That's the end of book three. So the end of book three is very short. But that's not the end of the book of Psalms, is it? There's still two books left, and now we're at the pivot point, the hinge point in the theology and story that the psalm or this book is telling. Now look at the, what I call verse zero in Psalms 90. And the reason I call it verse zero is because it's part of Scripture. It's part of the inspired text. It's not an add-on by the editor of your Bible just making a little note about what it's about. Right? It's part of Scripture. I don't know why we don't number it in English. In Hebrew, it's verse 1. So because it doesn't have a number, I call it verse 0. So that's what I mean by verse 0. It's part of the Bible. What's the superscript there? It's really important. A prayer of who? Moses. How many Psalms from Moses are there in the book? There's just one. Why do you suppose it's right here? What does Moses do? What's his mission? Who does he go to? People living in darkness to whom a promise was made of a land that they would live in, but they've been in slavery for 400 years with no end in sight. And so what does God do? He sends Moses to bring them out of the land of slavery and death to the land of blessing and life by the death of the lamb and the blood of the firstborn son. And now we hear at the darkest hour in the book of Psalms when it looks like everything has failed and David is gone and God has forgotten and not kept his promise, Moses is back and he's singing because a new exodus is coming. And we're turning the corner in Psalms right here. And now we're starting to build back up. And if you keep reading through book four, redemption is coming. And it's coming this way. Every son of David failed. Every son of David sinned so he could not save anyone from sin. Every son of David died so he could save no one from death. There's one left who hasn't come yet. And he will not sin and he will not die because he will be God. Yahweh himself somehow or another is going to become incarnate and take the throne of David and he will be the final son of David who does not sin and does not die, who brings deliverance to God's people from sin and death. And we're turning that corner right here with Moses. And then we build to the end of book four. And at the end of book four, you have 103 through 106. Sorry, I'm kind of going now because I really like this book. So bear with me. We're close to the end. Psalms 103 through 106 rehearse the entire history of the Pentateuch. Right? It goes back to Genesis and poetry and goes all the way through Deuteronomy and poetry. 104, 5, and 6. And the theme that is rehearsed over and over in there is look at how they screwed this up. And look at how they screwed that up. And then they screwed this up. 
And then they screwed that up, right? Because that's the story of the Pentateuch. God saves them, they're mad. God saves them, they grumble. God saves them, they rebel. They screwed this up and this up and this up. That's Psalms 104, 5, and 6. But they all have to be read with 103, which comes first. What does 103 say? As high as the heavens are from the earth, as far as the east is from the west, what does God do? He casts our sins from us because of God's work on our behalf, because God is the one who rescues people in exile, because God is the one who comes to people in darkness who are always 104, 105, 106, faithless, 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 because God is faithful and he does the east from the west work of redeeming us from our sin. Then this whole program is actually going to work and come to completion because God will keep the covenant when his people did not. That's the end of book four. Look at the end of 106. And you'll hear the refrain again, but there's something new in it. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. We've heard that. Now let all the people say amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. That's new. All the people. That's important. All the people. Not just people who are related to Abraham genetically. People from every tribe and tongue and nation and language are now being gathered from exile to come worship the king. You see that? There's a reason Luther calls this book the mini Bible because it actually tells the whole story of scripture in poetry, in its pages. And then we get to book five, Psalms 107. It doesn't matter how far you've gone. If you read through it, it doesn't matter where you're at. It doesn't matter if you're in the sea or in the mountains or across the ocean. It doesn't matter where you've gone to try to hide. It doesn't matter where you've ended up in exile. It doesn't matter how far from God you are. If you are his in Christ, if he has said, I love that one, I've chosen that one, I'm coming to get that one, then he will come and find you and bring you home. That's Psalms 107. Then we keep going and we're building up to the Psalms of Ascents. These are the Psalms of a people coming home, led by the Son. Psalms 24 is coming to fulfillment in the Psalms of Ascents as they go up to Jerusalem. And after they get home, we get two Psalms together, 136 and 137. 136 is the Psalm. Every other line says the same thing. Why is all this working? His steadfast love endures forever. That's the word chesed. His fiery, passionate covenant love for his people endures forever. Every other line, his love endures forever. Then he does this because his love endures forever. And then he does this because his love endures forever. All of this is the work of God for the glory of God and the benefit and the redemption of his people. Then we get Psalms 137. That's a psalm of exile. And the two are juxtaposed. What's it going to be? Which way will you, will you end up on? The song of the redeemed, his love endures forever? Or the song of exile by the rivers of Babylon? Where do you want to end? And what's going to make the difference? Remember what we said the theme of the book was? Love the word, come to the sun. Who starts singing in 138? Read the superscript. It's a psalm of whom? David. Wait a minute. David's prayers ended in Psalm 72. He's dead. How can David start singing again at the end of the book of Psalms? Well, it's because he's back. 
And it's a different David. It's not the one who sinned and died. This is the one who is Yahweh incarnate taking the throne. And now David's singing. And this is how all of this comes home. The way that the difference between his love endures forever and singing that song. And I'm by the river of Babylon and I'm in exile and under judgment forever. The difference is the son who is singing in 138. Have you come to him and do you know this David? And it continues to build through the rest of the book till you get to the, now I'm almost done, to the hallelujah chorus at the end, right? 146, 7, 8, 9, and 150. I'll look at them. All begin and end with this Hebrew word we started singing the service with. It's translated, praise the Lord. It's hallelujah. Hallelujah, 146. Hallelujah at the end, beginning of 147. Hallelujah, end of 147. Hallelujah, beginning of 148. Hallelujah, end of 148. Hallelujah, beginning of 149. Hallelujah, end of 149. Hallelujah. And every single line of 150 begins with hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. It's exploding in praise because now we're in the new heavens and the new earth with the redeemed people who've come home the Psalms of Ascent, and they're with the Son doing what they were made for forever. That is the message, the structure, the story, and the theology of the book of Psalms. And it all orbits around, you need to love the Word so that you can love the Son. Because only through faith in the Son does the rest of this book happen to you. Got it? That's Psalms. That's why it's a mini-Bible. That's why I love this book, because it's the book of the coming king. And ultimately, it's asking in all of its pages and its poetry, do you know the Son? Do you know the Son? So here's your commission from this sermon this morning as we move in to our summer sermon series on Psalms. Two things. Make reading in Psalms part of your regular Bible habits this summer. Whether you do it in your quiet times or some other time you set aside, you might just want to read Psalms 27 through 33. That's what we're spending summer in. Otherwise, just read the book. In my study leave, I read the whole book again a couple weeks ago, one book at a time. All book one, all, and then I made notes about how the story develops. It was really fun. It's a beautiful story. Read Psalms this summer. Figure out a way to intentionally put it into your normal everyday life. Two, when we're memorizing Psalms 32, let's do it together. So that's your other commission. I don't mind if you have to open your Bible to review every now and then, but my commission to you from this text would be, by the end of the summer, have delight in the law of the Lord to the point where nobody needs to open their Bibles to review the memory verse in the middle of the service. Okay? Incorporate Psalms into your reading. It's a necessary part of your discipleship. And let's memorize Psalms 32 together because it's going to remind you, right, with its blessed is beginning. Blessed is the man who loves the word. Blessed is the man who comes to the Son. Blessed is the one whose sins are forgiven. And if you know the Son, that's your song too. Let's pray. Father, thank you for poetry that is hard to read and points us to love your Son. I pray for each of us here, wherever we're at with your son, that hearing the word this morning would cause us to make another step toward finding refuge in Jesus Christ as Savior and as Lord. In his name, amen.